Thank you for tuning in to the best parenting show on the internet. Post Daily Dose. Um, Alright, so I'm going to start off with this little bowl. I've been um, carrying this bowl around for 15 years, and it has one very important purpose, and that is to give you a cue to breathe. Like when I do my all-day lectures, it's when we're starting back from a break, I ring the bowl, and then I just ring the bowl to give you a cue to breathe. And I do that because if there's one thing I could teach you that's more important than anything else, after 20 years of doing this stuff, it's the power of breathing in relationship. It's the power of breathing in the presence of stress. It's the power of breathing when you are stressed. The problem is, is we stop breathing and we start holding our breaths. So let's just do a little breathing. Inhaling through your nose, exhaling out of your mouth. Good, thank you. The key with breathing is to practice your breathing when you're calm. Because when you're stressed, it's too late, you're already holding your breath. When you are breathing, you are turning on your brain's oxytocin response. When you are turning on your brain's oxytocin response, you are dampening down your fear reaction. There's a response and there's a reaction. A response is with thought. A reaction is without thought. A response is conscious. A reaction is unconscious. Most of the time when we are acting out, when we are stressed, we are in an unconscious state. We are in a reactive state. And what we want to do is we want to become more conscious and more responsible. And one of those first steps one of the first keys to doing that is to be able to teach yourself to breathe when you're stressed. It turns on your oxytocin, it dampens down your amygdala, which ultimately gives you a less fearful state. And that's our talk this afternoon, is effective discipline through fear, less parenting. And what that means is you don't have to be without fear in parenting. It's impossible. It's impossible to be without stress in parenting. You have to be right where you're at. But I believe that if we dial down our fear in just degrees, just degrees, if we can dial down our anxiety in just degrees, we can create breakthroughs in our relationships and in our homes with our children. It's just degrees. It doesn't have to be you know, a big, a great big breakthrough to create a big, great big breakthrough. Go back to my educational stress model. Now this is why I, my, I teach in schools, and the point of this is that when you are in a state of amygdala activation, when you're in that brainstem state, 
where all your trauma is stored, where all your emotion, all your pain, all your negative experiences are stored, you are in a surviving and reactive state of being, meaning you are not thinking. You cannot learn effectively. It's so important to understand that when children are stressed out, they cannot think clearly and they cannot learn. And if we are stressed out, then we are not thinking clearly and we are not remembering that being stressed out with them two hours ago didn't help. And that's why we do the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result because we are stressed. And when we are stressed, we regress. We regress to early emotional ages. And those earlier emotional ages are what are connected to our brainstem and all of our traumas and all of our, our stressful, fear-based experiences. So when we're in that survival reacting stage, there's one goal, one goal only, and that is to move up to the responding stage. How do you help a child most effectively who's in, and this doesn't even just have to be for children, this is for adults too. This is for, for, for yourself, with your partners, with your spouses, with your coworkers. This is human behavior. There's one goal and one goal only from the surviving reacting stage, and that's to move up to the responding stage. The way you move up to the responding stage is by taking the first step to take that deep breath. That first deep breath in the midst of stress starts to move your amygdala from a, 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 a heightened state to a less heightened state. And as soon as that happens and your hypothalamus starts to kick in, when your hypothalamus starts to kick in, you start to release oxytocin. Your brain's anti-stress hormone. I, to be honest with you, I feel like everything that we do and teach in parenting and relationships should be talking about oxytocin. I just, I don't understand how there's not like this revolution about oxytocin. It's the anti-stress hormone. And I believe that stress is at the root of everything. And if stress is at the root of everything, then obviously we want the anti-stress hormone. We want to immunize ourselves from stress. And the way we do that is through oxytocin. And so breathing is that first step in creating oxytocin. The next step is eye contact. But you don't have to force a child to make eye contact. A child doesn't make eye contact because they are stressed out. The, Any time we become stressed, we are receiving input from all of our sensory pathways. So you have eight different sensory pathways that I'm familiar with. What you see, what you smell, what you smell is the most immediate one. So smell is the most immediate pathway to your primal brain. What you hear, what you touch, what you taste. Temperature. The temperature of your body is a pathway. Digestion and movement. Eight sensory pathways that are vastly unconscious. You're not paying attention to what you see, but it could take seeing one color, one shape of person, one, one color of a person, one person's hair a certain way to send you into a post-traumatic stress reaction. You're not always paying attention to what you hear. You only hear one, one one hundredth of all the sensory input that you have coming in. That's all you can pay attention to. One one hundredth. So you can only hear one one hundredth of the things and all the sounds that are going on right now. Right now you think you're focused just on my voice, but you're hearing a magnitude of sounds. You either hear sounds from the other room, you hear sounds from outside but you're just focused, your brain will only allow you to focus on one. But any one of those sounds can send you back into a post-traumatic stress episode. Just one. 
And you don't even have to know what it is. We used to have a math teacher, not a math, a science teacher in school, Mr. Thompson. <coughs> Mr. Thompson used to get triggered by sniffling. When, and everyone knew it. It was passed down from class to class to class. Don't sniffle in Mr. Thompson's room. He doesn't like it. It was a trigger for him. Just, and some kids would do it purposely. But it was a trigger, that one sound. So we have all these different sensory pathways that we can easily become overwhelmed by, and we don't understand them because it's unconscious. It's unconscious, but the thing we can do is we, we all have a sense of how we're feeling. We can stop and breathe. We can stop and breathe, and then that brings us up to our hippocampus. Our hippocampus, when you're breathing, your hippocampus is what helps you to have short-term memory and helps you to begin to think clearly. But you, you're up three stages before you get there. You're up three stages before you get to your hippocampus. Because when you're stressed, your hippocampus is offline. So you have to breathe. You don't have to. You can choose not to. You can choose to hold your breath and just act like an ass. And we do that sometimes, don't we? And that's okay. We all, it's, it's God's, God's gift to us to be able to act like an ass sometimes. We can do it. But we can also do better the next time. Because we can all fail. And I believe you should fail marvelously. I believe you should go up and mess up, mess up, go out and mess up as big as you can. Because then you can learn from it. And you can do better the next time. But you have to get all the way up to your hippocampus before your thinking starts to come online and you begin to have effective short-term memory. You have to be able to breathe through that. And then we're up to our prefrontal cortex. Now we're thriving. Now we're integrating. Now we're learning. No learning is taking place until you get all the way up there. So when you're interacting with someone who's really stressed out and overwhelmed, what's the single best thing you can do? Breathe. Not say a word. Just breathe. Don't say to them, let's breathe. Because they'll say, shove it up your ass. <laughs> Just start breathing. Just start breathing. Stop talking. Start breathing. Because that's how you regain power in the exchange. You want to be powerful in an exchange with another person? Start breathing. Turn on your oxytocin. Calm down. Dampen down your amygdala. Don't let yourself feel so threatened and overwhelmed. Because when you're not breathing, you feel threatened. And when you see a threat, your whole body starts to want to protect yourself. Your whole body moves into survival when you see a threat. So when you see a threat, you can't be in a place of love and relationship with another person. Because you're in a place of survival. And when it comes to kids, who's got to be able to see clearly? When it comes to kids, who's got to be able to see that there's no threat? We do. We have to be able to teach them that there's no threat. But the only way we can teach them that there's no threat is by not feeling threatened ourselves. By not feeling threatened ourselves. Any therapy or technique that is confrontational, aggressive, threatening, blaming, or fear-based will ultimately not be effective for creating healing environments for attachment-challenged children. I don't call children attachment disordered. I don't call it att reactive attachment disordered. I don't even diagnose children. 
I've been doing this for 20 years and I don't diagnose children. You would think I've been doing this for 20 years, I'd come up with 10 different diagnoses. But I don't diagnose them at all. Because I feel like it's a label that scapegoats them. I feel like as soon as I give a child a diagnosis, then I'm looking at them in this box. And as soon as I start looking at them in that box, then you're looking at them in that box. And then that's all we see. We remove all parental responsibility. All I see is stress and fear. All I see is stress-sensitive, fearful children. That's all I see. Therefore, I don't see threats. I don't see threats. I see stress and fear. When a child says to me, I'm going to manipulate you. I'm, I'm, I know all you therapists. I know what you guys do. I can figure you out. I'm going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. I say, that's awesome. That's good. Because that tells me just how scared you are. And I want you to be right where you need to be. And we're going to get through this. When a child cusses me out, oh, I'm so thankful for that. Because they're not hitting me. Now think about that. We've got attitudes, feelings, and behaviors. What do you want? You want eyes rolling? You want to get cussed out? Or you want to get hit in the face? You choose. I tell you what. Cuss me all you want. Just don't hit this. <laughs> oh, no. I'm very sensitive. Very fragile. But our history, our generational conditioning, tells us that those attitudes and those feelings are not okay. So what we'll do is we'll deny a child attitudes and feelings until we push them into behaviors. We push them into behaviors from our fear. We push them into behaviors from our overwhelm. We push them into behaviors because we don't feel strong enough and courageous enough to buck up against the generational conditioning that we've heard for generations and generations and generations. And realize that what we've been doing with this child is not working. What we've been doing in these relationships is not working. We've got to do something different. And we all have the ability to do that. Let's talk about it from the perspective of the brain. Why do we focus on negative behaviors? Any idea? Any idea why our biggest focus is on behaviors? I know, let me tell you something. Everything I teach is simple. It's gonna, it's gonna usually boil down to about three things. So what? Behaviors yeah. are the easiest to define. Yes. It, it, it's hard to define an attitude, uh, feelings, much easier to say, he did this, she did that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stress and fear. We focus on behaviors because of fear. We focus on behaviors because we want to tell those parents what those behaviors are because we're afraid that they can't handle them. And then also we don't tell them the really bad behaviors because we're afraid they may not handle them or they may not want that child. And we identify that behavior because that's all we pay attention to. That's what we see with our eyes. We miss the eye rolling and we miss the talking back and we miss the huffing and puffing because we're looking for the behavior. Because we start suppressing the attitudes and the feelings to get to the behavior because we feel threatened. When I feel threatened, I need you to misbehave. Have you ever had a child in your home who you just feel like keeps pushing you and pushing you and pushing you until you blow up? You know why they're doing that? 
predictability. They're predicting bad things happening. So they have to make the bad thing happen. When we're in a state of stress, I need you to misbehave so I can predict what you're going to do. Because when I'm conditioned, when I'm conditioned generationally for attitudes and feelings not to be okay, I can't really speak to that. All I can do is suppress that. I need the behavior so I can focus on it because that's how I can create safety for myself. I need you to misbehave so I have something I can see that I can feel scared, that I can feel afraid of. I need something I can obsess about. Because that's all my focus is, is when I'm stressed, is on survival. I have to have it. We become addicted to negative behaviors. And they're the things we don't want to see, right? We don't want negative behaviors. We don't want children to act out. But that's what we focus on. We're always focusing on the negative behavior. Because that's what we see, and when we can see it, we can control it. And so we go from that place of being obsessed by it to trying to suppress it and control it and overpower it and dominate it. We try to make it go away. The reason we try to make it go away is because it stresses us out. But what if I told you the behavior had nothing to do with you? What if I told you that their behavior, their negative behavior, was a manifestation of their trauma? What if it was rooted in their trauma, had nothing to do with you, and it was the only thing they knew how to do in that moment because that's all that's in their brain? All that's in their brain in that moment is that trauma, and that trauma tells them to behave the way they're behaving. What if I said it wasn't about you at all? It was about their trauma. But when your amygdala feels threatened, it focuses on their behavior and sees their behavior as a threat to you. That's the exchange. That's how it becomes a negative dynamic. That's how everyone gets overwhelmed. We get overwhelmed because we personalize the behaviors, but what that means is my amygdala is obsessing on your behaviors because my amygdala is trying to keep me safe. And then when my amygdala is overwhelming my, my, hip, my hypothalamus and my hippocampus, I can't think clearly and I can't remember. And then I'm regressing. So now I forget that I'm an adult, and before you know it, I'm acting like an adolescent to your two-year-old state. Because you're 10, stressing out and going back to 2, and I'm 45, stressing out and going back to 13. And neither of us is doing very good. And when we're really honest, and when we're really in the midst of a stressful dynamic, no one's doing very well. We're definitely not doing very well. And we have to be able to do better. Because if we can't do better, we can't teach our children how to do better. But see, what we want to do is we want to keep trying to get our children to be better without us being better. We keep wanting to get them to do better, and we're not doing any better. What we do is we just relax and wait until we feel threatened again. But that's not growth. When they start behaving, we're good. We're back to the easy boy, the cold beer, and the football game. But then when they start behaving again, we're right back to 13. And then ultimately, we all remain stuck. And the first thing we have to do is be able to breathe in the midst of stress. We have to be able to slow that down and connect. The stress model says all behavior, all behavior arises from a state of stress. This is a very simple model. I've been working with this model for 20, 18 years. All behavior arises from a state of stress. In between the behavior and the stress is the presence of a primary emotion. 
There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. Those are the only emotions that exist. Everything else is a feeling. A, thing, a feeling is a cognitive perception of an emotion. An emotion is just an energy state. Your body only knows two energy states, surviving or thriving. Those are two energy states that your body knows. You're either in a surviving state or you're in a thriving state. All behavior arises from a state of stress. In between the behavior and the stress is the presence of a primary emotion. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. It's through the expression, the processing, and the understanding of the fear that we calm the stress and diminish the behavior. It's through the expressing, the yelling about it, the crying about it, the talking about it, the processing, the talking more about it, the understanding of it, the working through it, and then the understanding of it, why it keeps showing up what it's about, what it's connected to, what we can do different that helps us calm the fear, calm the stress, and diminish the behavior. But here's the trick. The trick is that all behavior causes us stress. There you go. The behavior causes us stress, which drives our fear. Our fear drives our behavior. When our fear is driving our behavior, then now we have two fear-based states engaging one another. When our child gets angry or sad or stressed out or overwhelmed, it stresses us out. And then initially, initially we're calm because we don't feel quite so threatened. But then if they continue to yell, if they continue to act out, if they continue to cry, we start to get helpless. And when we start to feel helpless, then we move into survival. And when we move into survival, then it's all over. Then all we can do is keep going until we're exhausted. And it's all vibration. It's all vibration. Love and fear is nothing more than a vibration. And that's why 98% of communication is nonverbal. It's not what you say or do. It's how you feel when you're doing and saying it. Almost all the communication is nonverbal. You just look at someone and you can tell how they feel because of a vibration. Your kids know how you feel because of a vibration. And we wonder why kids don't get better and they just get older. It's because of the vibrations. We can't trick them. They're too sensitive. They've learned that they have to be able to predict. They have to be able to predict what's going to happen in their lives. We have to learn to dial down our fear. <coughs> When we learn to dial down our fear, then we are able to dial down the vibration that we're sending to our children. When we dial down that vibration, then we stop being the threat. Here's where we go wrong. When we become stressed, we become the threat. They're already seeing, because of their brainstem, because of the experiences they, they've had, they're already seeing you as a threat. When they're stressed, their brainstem opens up, all their negative experiences come out, and they see you as a villain. When you become stressed and you start to reinforce that, you really are the villain. So then all learning goes away. All ability to learn is held hostage. 
And we're the ones who are doing it nine times out of ten. We're getting upset, becoming the threat, doing whatever we do, and then our children aren't ever learning. And we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. We have to stop becoming the threat. And you stop becoming the threat by learning how to manage your stress and your overwhelm. Because nine times out of ten, your stress and overwhelm doesn't even have anything to do with your kids. It has to do with your generational conditioning. It has to do with your own experiences. It has to do with the fact that dad smacked you when you acted that way. So you immediately feel like you need to smack when your child acts that way. And even though you don't smack, you still generate that energy. You still generate that vibration. Follow me? Okay, let's look at a video. the world, but I hope I'm making a difference. Here's all my early dismissal students across the street. With summer coming, Madison Park's principal, Chuck McAfee, knows that some students find warm weather especially distracting. Sir, sir, what are you doing? It seemed like a good idea, but where do you really belong? All right, let's get there. Being a principal means being consistent, being fair, and about communication. Not a bad idea, though. You have to have a really good sense of humor to be successful at this. Watch right here. Okay, he's looking around, walks right up. Look at this. He puts the gun right directly on the camera, thinks that nobody's going to see him. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Sometimes it's not always fun. These are young people. And so we do have rules. Let's go. No hats. Basic rule. We like to think that you're in school to learn. It's just one of the rules that we're trying to work with. He took my hat. My hat was on the table. It was now on my head. Why would I walk around and put a hat on my head? Let me go up and see him. You wait here. This student is angry that his hat was confiscated by one of his teachers. A minor incident at some schools. How are they doing? At Madison Park. Chuck McAfee knows things can quickly spin out of control. I put my hat on the table. Other teachers didn't have a problem with that. Why did he have a problem with it? Little issues that's going on here that I'm not getting. They're me. See, I mean, I'm trying to figure this out. There's always two sides of the stories. I mean, I cannot imagine why someone coming down to my office about just his hat. If he wasn't wearing his hat. Yeah. Why did the teacher take my hat? Yeah. I don't know. He, he had his hat, he left his hat in a place it wasn't supposed to be, I took his hat. What's the point? He doesn't really perform at, at any kind of acceptable level. Um, he caught a real nasty attitude about it. Why do you want to leave school? Yeah, I know. He can relax about his hat uh, and get his hat at, at the end of the school day. <laughs> or you said at lunchtime? Well, see, I'm at lunchtime if I'm a nice guy and you don't treat me bad. Would you really say anything? Yeah, he called me all kinds of names. He was swearing at me and everything before he was leaving. He called, no, you know me, I, you know. But before he left here, I was all kinds of, you know, MFAS type oh, stuff. Oh, all right. How are we doing? Come on. 
So just from this two minutes and 48 seconds, you guys feel like the principal's focused on relationship or behavior? Relationship. He even started when he seen the kids sleeping outside, right? He said, what are you doing? Get back in school. Kid smiles. He puts his arm around the kid. They go back in school. Kid comes complaining about his hat. He sits and listens to him. He says, okay, let me go talk to the teacher. He's focused on relationship. But in the same 20 minutes spent, 20 seconds spent of time, what do you think the teacher's focused on? Yeah. Behavior. Completely focused on behavior. That's all he sees is behavior. The hat. And then the cussing. And then the fact that he's not a very good student. See how it's compounding? It's compounding in the teacher's head. <coughs> How we know it's the longer you do this, you get a sixth sense. If I get it right, I'm going to find out the root of the problem. Now, here's what I want to tell you. I love this because he says the longer you do it, you get a sixth sense and you get to the root of the behavior. And the kid immediately says, All I want is my hat back. Listen to what the principal says. I'm 18. And see, that's the tough part. And when you get 18, you're like grown and it's hard to deal with you. He didn't say nothing about the hat. Because the hat is nothing but behavior. And all behavior arises from a state of stress and fear. And so the principle just goes into relating to him. He's just connected. He's not focused on the hat. Because there's no threat. He doesn't see the kid as a threat. Because he doesn't see the kid as a threat, he can be in relationship. And he can still teach. He can still connect. See, we, a lot of times, we, we, we confuse focusing on relationships with not teaching our children. We confuse not focusing on behavior as not teaching your child how to behave. Just because you focus on relationship doesn't mean you're not teaching your child how to behave. It just means you're teaching your child how to behave through the power of relationship. Which means you're teaching your child how to behave from an internal state of control and not an external state of control. See, we, we are classically conditioned to control behaviors externally with our behavior modifications and our consequences and our timeouts and our spankings and our threats. All of that is external control. But then what happens is our children grow up and they have very little internal control. Internal control is manifest through relationship because relationship teaches regulation. Relationship teaches the brain. Relationship is based in love. If my hat was small enough to fit in my pocket, I would put it in my pocket. And he just wanted to do this to show me that he got power over me. This and that's that. what I thought it was. Honestly, that's, that's, that's what I got. All right. I was trying to figure out what was this about. It's not about the hat. You, know, you feel like you didn't get that much respect. 
to take my hat. Carmen had her hat on the table. What is the appropriate response from the teacher to this statement? The teacher said, anything, anything to say? Have a seat. Anything, anything to say? Teacher, student says, why'd you only take my hat? Carmen had her hat on the table too. What's the appropriate response? What's a good response? That's a good question. That's a perfect response. Say again. Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. I love it. That's perfect. What else could we do? Take a deep breath. What else could you say? What else could the teacher say? Maybe you didn't see Carmen have her hat on the table as well. I didn't see Carmen had her hat. Then what? What do you follow that up with? Apologize. I apologize. Give me one more. You feel unfair against. Hmm? You feel unfair against. You, you, you feel like I was being unfair. Okay. Perfect. You felt like I was being unfair. Kid says, yeah. Teacher says, me too. Okay. Me too. All right. What can we do to figure it out? Right? All right. You know what is required in order to be able to have that exchange? A regulated adult. A regulated adult has to be able to respond instead of react. And then, rather than that, he cries, he cries, he cries, yo, Will, put that in the locker. I don't like that at all. I don't like that tone. I'm not going to get it. No, no, that's not the tone I'm going to get because you're not following the rules. If the hat is sitting around, I'm going to tell you from where I come from, you adult, no adult. Yo, if you're gonna, if you're gonna treat somebody like that, how you expect me to talk to you? Okay. Okay. What's going on? Who's trying to have the power? But who has the power? The student, because he's calm, right? But who's supposed to be calm? The teacher. And the teacher is taking this to a totally different level. How long 
do we expect this young man to tolerate this? We don't know what his window of tolerance is. We know he's been in three, what, three different schools? Three different schools, so we know he has some issues. So how long does he, does he put up with an adult who's being disrespectful and not listening and not trying to come up with a solution? Yep. And the kids just saying, give me some respect. Right? Here's the deal. The rule is no hats. If I find out the rule is no hats. Hey, yo, man, what the f***? Man, you really begin to piss me off, dog. Your man here running your mouth, I doing this thing, thinking that your rules this and that. Listen, 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 listen to me closely, all right? I don't care about you. I don't give two about you. All I want is with my damn hat. You have no right to take my hat off. What can the teacher do at this point? <laughs> Shut his mouth. You can hear him in the background still trying to talk, though. But he could breathe. What else could he do? There you go. There you go. But what's the teacher got to be able to do in order to be able to do that? All of that. He's got to breathe. He's got to shut his mouth. He's got to regulate. If I put my hand on the table, you have to write to me. Well, I don't want to have that. Put it in the locker. If I don't put it in the damn locker, I'm going to ask somebody. So I just put it in the locker. You don't go into my bedroom. Let go of me. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the child being aggressive? Is he expressing himself? Is he being violent? He's actually practicing quite a bit of self-control. Right? So the aide's going to come in, and we just saw the aide went right up to him and put his hands on him. You think the kid's stressed out right now? No. To the roof. What happens when we get touched when we've already been maxed out? He's kid says, don't put your hands on me. And the aide puts his hand right back up there. So now we've got total overwhelm. Yo! So at this point, 
You've got three adults. You've got one kid. One 18-year-old kid. Who has done more to create more overwhelm in this situation? The three adults. Because the principal knew the teacher was stressed out. He said to the kid, come on, let's go talk to Mr. Wilkins. Let me get your hat. And then he put them in the room together. And then the teacher didn't listen. The teacher was stressed out. And then the aide came in. We say what the aide did was well-intentioned, but it wasn't well-intentioned. It was intentional with him trying to calm the situation down. Why do you think he needed to calm the situation down so much? Because he was scared. That's why when the kid said, don't put your hands on me, he couldn't help but put his hand up. Because he couldn't even hear at that point. Kid gets completely overwhelmed, knocks out the window. Granted, the kid is 18 years old. 18-year-olds ultimately shouldn't knock out the window. But is this kid 18? Not right now. In this moment, is he 18? He's not at all. Yeah, he's three, maybe even two. Usually you see the most destruction with two-year-olds. It's a tough world out there for young people. They feel very vulnerable. When they feel disrespected, we're in a lot of trouble. Does that sound accurate? Yep. It's a tough world out there for, for kids, for young children. When they feel vulnerable and disrespected, we're in a lot of trouble. That sounds really good. Let's listen to the very next thing he says. They do things sometimes that don't make any sense. Sometimes it's so easy. You know, when you're dealing with young people, then they have to explode. How do you say it's a tough world out there for children when they feel disrespected, we're in a lot of trouble, and then you turn around and say they do things that don't make sense, he didn't have to explode. You just said you understood why he did it. This is an incongruent message, and this is what we send to kids in our society. All the time, we are sending our children messages that say I'm the adult, I'm the one in charge, but as soon as they mess up, we blame them and we make it their fault. All the time. That's the message over and over and over again. All the time we're saying, you're a kid, you're not an adult yet, I'm an adult, I can make adult decisions, but as soon as they mess up, we treat them like adults. There's incongruent messages that we communicate all the time with our kids. And it all comes back to a lack of our own understanding about ourselves and why our children do the things we do, because they, that they do, because ultimately we all do it for the same reason. We're all stressed and scared. We're all stressed and scared. But we as adults are the first ones who have to take responsibility, because we're the only ones ultimately who can change it, other than just letting kids grow up and just figure it out for themselves, which a lot of times that's what they end up doing. They make it through a system, they turn 18, they age out, and then they have to figure it out. You see it over and over again. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, they turn 18, they know nothing, and they have to figure it out. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense because we're operating from stress and fear. 
And when you're operating from stress and fear, you do the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different outcome. After his attempt to make peace between teacher and student backfires, Chuck McAfee has to clean up the mess. You gotta see his hand, he's a nurse. See his hand. He's gonna have to end up having to pay for this. This way. When things really mess up, it's my fault. The buck stops here. Okay. I'll accept that. Did you hear that statement? When things mess up, it's my fault. The buck stops here, which implies I have to take responsibility. I'm good with that. Okay, what happened? I'm trying to talk to him, he refused to let me talk, and then he gave me aggravated because he's talking to me like I'm a, like I'm a first grader. And so now I got you're aggravated. So then you turn around, get mad, and punch the window? Yeah. He made me seem like I'm stupid. Okay. You need a stick in it. Oh, the window. Listen, my mom can't pick up I got five little brothers, and my, my mom worked at two jobs, and she can't hardly pay the rent. No, wait, wait a minute. Then we'll probably talk about some kind of restitution. We'll find a way. All right? Thank you. Okay. Things mess up. It's my fault. The buck stops here. But who's paying for the window? Who are we going to figure out the restitution for? It ain't me. We're going to figure out the restitution for you. So what does that even mean? When things mess up, it's my fault. The buck stops here. It means nothing. Because no adult in this environment, in this dynamic, is taking one iota of responsibility. Not one. The principal could have said, I guess I misread that wrong. Probably shouldn't have sent you in there by yourself. I'm sorry about that. I screwed up on that. I'm going to go talk to Mr. Jones and see what Mr. Jones has to say. But me and you and Mr. Jones are going to have to get us some Girl Scout cookies and go down to Walmart on Saturday and raise some money so we can replace this window. Because we all screwed up. That's taking responsibility. Not only is it taking responsibility, but it's repairing and strengthening relationships. But just putting the onus on the kid, it's doing nothing. It's just a setup to do the same thing again the next time. Because we're not learning from experiences. They just keep happening the same way over and over and over again. And situations like this happen in schools across America every day. Happens in homes every day. How many times do the kids you have in your homes, they have these big explosions, they have these big problems. You come together, social worker and foster parents say, oh, what happened? Oh, my gosh. Well, okay. Well, we'll send him an RTC if we need to, or maybe, we need, maybe he needs another medication, or maybe we need to get him another diagnosis. And then the next day, we just do the same thing. No one's taking responsibility. No one's saying, what could we, let's sit down at the table and let's talk about what we could have done differently. What could we have done differently so we don't do this again? The goal is not to keep repeating the same thing. The goal is to change it. The goal is to create healing for the child. Help us get to a place of growth. Any thoughts, any questions, any comments? So I guess I have one. Yeah. Um, I worked with Adolescents for eight years. 
Yep. to that that makes that possible is removing the blame because the reason it's so difficult to unpack your own role is because you're in defense you're in survival you don't want to be blamed you're already freaking stressed out the last thing you want someone telling you to do is what you did wrong Right? So as long as we're, and then they're telling you what you did wrong because they're stressed out because they don't want you to give up. Because if you give up, then they got a child, they've got a place. So they rather you try to figure out how you did something wrong as opposed to being able to just be supportive and just say, hey, it sucks. We could just say, hey, that sucks. Let's just look at it. Let's just talk about it. That's the best thing we can do. I love glorious parenting disasters. The worse the disaster, the better, because it just gives us so many good things to look at. Like, where did it start at? Man, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting? We know where it ended up, but where did it start at? How did he sleep the night before? How was breakfast? How were you feeling? When you guys had breakfast, did he eat breakfast? Was he up playing games all night long? Ah, yeah, yeah. Probably something going on right there. I'm not even looking at the blow-up. The blow-up is actually very irrelevant to me. The blow-up is the tail end. I could care less. Let's figure out how we can prevent it the next time. Let's figure out what we can do differently next time. And then we don't have to worry about blow-ups. We see the blow-up is the behavior. And that's what we get so obsessed about. We get so obsessed and consumed about the child running away that we forget to focus on the fact that the child's running away because they're running to some other relationship. They're running away to some other relationship because they don't feel supported and secure and safe. I had a treatment home of six adolescent boys from 13 to 18. Some of them were always known for running away from residential treatment facilities and everywhere else. We never had locked doors. We never had consequences. We never did restraint. None of that. We just did relationship. I had a kid once. We had our own school for a while. This was a kid who was known for running away. He would get up in the mornings, and he would walk to school before everyone else. He loved going to school. He loved going to school. He'd get there before everyone else. The school was about six blocks away. He'd walk to school, and he'd do his schoolwork all day long. Then he'd come home. We ran out of funding for our school, so we had to close it down. So our boys ended up having to go to a day treatment where they have a door, a big metal door that goes cling, and that was a trigger for him. And he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. How do you take a kid who loves going to school, and then you have a kid who doesn't want to go at all? So one morning, 
I was getting the other boys up. I said, Kevin, you got to get up, man. We got to go. I got to take these boys to school. I don't care if you don't go or not, but you got to get up. You're not going to just lay in bed. So he's like, okay. So you sit on the porch. I'm going to take the other boys to school. This is a kid who's known for running away, 16 years old. I leave him sitting on the porch. He's known for running away. I drive the other boys to school. Probably took me a half an hour to get back. I get back, Kevin's gone. I walk around the house. I see a window open. Walk in the house, go up the stairs. Kevin's back in his room on the floor. Kevin did not run away. Kevin broke into the house. <laughs> he broke into the house. What does that tell you about his feeling about the safety in that home? The relationships in that home. We didn't give Kevin anything to run away from. That's the key. You don't focus on the behavior. You focus on the relationship because the relationship influences. As long as you're focused on relationship, you have the ability to influence. When you're focused on the behavior, all you can do is control. And you can control these little ones. But when they hit adolescence, you can't control them anymore. And by then, you've spent so much time and stress that the relationship has been severed. How do you repair the relationship? You have to be the bigger person. The bigger person oftentimes means being the softer person. I've never been hit by a kid. I've never been hit by a kid, and I've worked with some aggressive kids. I've never been hit because I've always been willing to lower my head, lower my shoulders, put my hand down, even sit down. Because I'm afraid? Yes. I'm afraid that if I smack one of these kids, they'll see me as a threat and I'll never be able to connect with them. I'm afraid if I collar one of these kids, they won't feel safe with me anymore. So I'm afraid, I'm afraid of ruining my relationship. So I'll, do a, I'll go a long ways to not be aggressive. I will run before I will be aggressive because I don't want you to be afraid of me. Because if you're afraid of me, we can't have a relationship. And if I can't have a relationship with you, I can't influence you. It's that simple. Can I protect myself? Of course. Do these kids think they can whip me? Of course not. They're just crazy. And if I get crazy with them, I become a threat. And we don't want to become threats. They've already had enough threats in their lives. There's nothing you can do to any of these kids that they haven't already experienced 10 times over. And when we're communicating with one another, as foster parents and as social workers, we have to understand that. We have to understand that like, we're, we're the end of the line. We're the end of the line. It's up to us to be able to communicate and work through and get our fear down enough that we can support one another enough that we can empower these children and take them to the next level of feeling secure, of feeling safe, because they don't. They don't feel safe. What do we got, five minutes? 245, what is it? We got about six or seven minutes. continuum. 
The pairs in continuous negative 1 to negative 100, net positive 1 to positive 100. The far side of the reactivity and fear stage is the death penalty, is negative 100. The far extreme on the positive side is perfect love, the side of responsibility and love. My contention is that the most common things we do when it comes to parenting, when it comes to children, is on the negative side of the continuum, negative 1 through 10. And we don't realize because it's negative 1, 2, 10 that it sits on the same continuum as the death penalty. And the death penalty has been proven time and time again to not be an effective deterrent to crime. And if the death penalty is not an effective deterrent to crime, what, do we, what makes us think anything less is going to be? Here's the thing. The reason the death penalty is not an effective deterrent to crime, because when you are stressed out, you are not thinking about the death penalty. When you are stressed out, your thinking is confused and distorted, your short-term short memory is suppressed, you're not thinking about the death penalty. When you are stressed out, you're not thinking about losing your points. When you're stressed out, you're not thinking about getting a spanking. When you're stressed out, you're not thinking about a consequence. When you're stressed out, you're not thinking about timeout. And then you get all of these things that ultimately are based in fear and reactivity, which means they just create more stress. When you create more stress, you just make the brain even more arrested in its ability to learn and grow and to heal. So the most common things we do, time out, I say don't do time out, do time in. Children don't act out for attention, they act out because they need attention. So bring them into you, don't separate them. Get rid of isolation altogether. If you need to isolate, isolate yourself. Say to the kid, I need a break. I'll be back in 10 minutes. I need a time out. Don't give the child a time out. The child relies on your regulatory presence. They rely on your ability to help them reach regulation because they are stressed out. They need you to come back inside that window of tolerance. Spanking. Spanking stresses out the brain. It stresses out the, the, the kid. And it makes you a threat. When you hit a child, you become like every other perpetrator in their life. If a child has ever been abused, as soon as you hit them, you're, you're an abuser. And it's really hard to come back from that. But a lot of times we talk about sparing the rod, sparing the rods full of the child when it comes to, to children. And that discusses the raising of sheep. The shepherd uses the rod and staff in the raising of sheep to guide them. They use the rod to guide. They use the staff to pull them back in when they stray. They don't use the rod to beat them over the head with it. Because if the shepherd beats the sheep, the sheep become afraid. And they stray from them. Sparing the rod, spoil the child means if you spare a child guidance, they will be spoiled to the ways of the world. Because if the child becomes afraid of you, they're going to run off just like the sheep and they're going to get eaten by the wolves. But that's what kids do. They look for a relationship. When we're not providing it, they go and start trying to find it. You know where they find a relationship? With every other stressed out kid in the community. And then because they can't regulate one another, guess what they do? They start seeking regulatory behaviors. Sex, drugs, alcohol, anything they can do to try to feel better. But none of that replaces the security of relationships. There's a proverb that says, raise up a child in the ways they should go, and when they, will, when they are mature, they will, they will not depart from it. Raise up a child in the way they shall go, and when they are mature, they will not depart from it. Who knows when that maturity is supposed to take place? Right? The prefrontal cortex doesn't complete its development. Your executive control center for social and emotional relationships 
doesn't complete its development until you're 25 years old in normal circumstances. Imagine if you're a foster child who's been in three, four, five years of, of trauma. You may not be mature until you're 30 years old. But we start treating kids like adults when they're two. When they're two. Consequences is always a big one. Natural consequences is always the big thing. Give a child natural consequences. Let me tell you something. You can't give a child a natural consequence because it's natural. You can't do it. That's like saying, put the child in an earthquake. You can't do it. They're parent-formulated consequences. And when you are consequencing a child for their behavior, you are consequencing that child for everything they've ever experienced in their life. You're consequencing them for every trauma that they've ever experienced because the consequence is reactive and it's fear-based. And when you say you're getting this consequence for this behavior, you're also saying you're responsible for, for all the traumas that you've ever experienced in your life. Is that the message you really want to communicate? No. We don't want to communicate that message, do we? But we do because we don't think about what we're doing. We don't think about what we're doing. If we're not willing to take responsibility, then we're blaming our children. Now, how do you take responsibility? You take a child, say you take him to the grocery store. And let's say your child's known for stealing. You take him to the grocery store, you say your consequence for stealing is getting in the basket. Get in the basket, you little thief. You're not going to be able to steal today. Doesn't feel very good. Or you could realize that your child steals because it is an external attempt to soothe an internal state. They steal because it's an addiction. Children steal because it feels good to them. So when you take that child to the store, you can say, you know what, honey? When we come to the store, it's really stressful. And when you get stressed, you take things that don't belong to you because it feels good. I'm going to have you get in the basket because in the basket I can keep you safe and you won't need to take things that don't belong to you. Now, I know you're 15 years old. <laughs> but Brian said, have them walk beside the basket. Have them push the basket. Have them hold the list. Help them understand why they do the things they do. But before you can help them understand why they do the things they do, you have to understand it. You have to see it differently. You have to feel differently about it. You have to see the stress and the fear underneath it. Once you start to see the stress and the fear underneath it, and you start to see how the stress and the fear makes you stressed and makes you fearful, then everything changes. Everything changes. And I remember a parent once heard me tell a little story about um, bath time problems. She said, my daughter's nine years old. She, she has problems taking a shower. Heard you tell this, gave this little intervention, reflect, relate, regulate. And she says, so I thought I'd try. She emailed me this, like two weeks, it was in Dallas, Texas, Linnelia Rahman. And Linnelia's daughter, Christina, was nine years old. And she said, so I thought I'd try the little technique. So I, that night I went home, and time for my daughter to take a shower. And so I was breathing, and I was getting myself calm. I said, honey, it's time to take a shower. She started talking back, rolling her eyes, just like she always does. This time I was calm. And I said, honey, if you need anything, I'll be right there. 
She said, my daughter went and got in the shower. I was surprised. But sure enough, she, just like she always does, water's too cold, it's too hot. Mom, I don't like this towel. I don't like this soap. I dropped the soap. Mom, mom. She said, usually I get frustrated. But this time, I was calm. I was breathing. I went in. I got what she needed. I sat down on the toilet, and I said, honey, I'm going to be right here. If you need anything, I'll be right here. She said, that was the best shower we've had in five years. So my nine-year-old daughter gets out, of, gets out of the shower with the towel wrapped around her. I go, we sit on her bed. I sit her next to me. I put my arm around her. I said, honey, that was the best shower we've had in nine years. What scares you so much about taking a shower? She said, my nine-year-old daughter looked at me and said, well, mom, the guy who sexually molested me made me take a shower with him. And she said, I took a deep breath, and I said, honey, you don't have to take a shower anymore. You can take a bath. Mom knew about the sexual molestation. She didn't know about the shower. She said, my daughter takes a bath so fast now, I don't even know when she's in and out. Five minutes to overcome five years. Just by looking at stress and fear, you all have the ability to do it. It doesn't have to be nearly as complicated as it's been made. Remove all the other stuff. Remove all the diagnosis. Remove all the medication. Remove all the history. Remove all the bad behaviors and all the labels and all the problems these children have come with and just see them as scared and know that their behaviors make you feel scared and sometimes you're a scared little kid just like they're a scared little kid and you're both scared little kids. But you have the ability, because of your brain, to take some deep breaths, calm yourself down, grow up, and then meet them right where they're at. And you will find peace in that place. You do it one time. I just ask you to do it one time. That's all I'm asking. One time. Try it one time. Try to see stress and fear one time. No more than that. I'm not asking any more than that. See it one time. You do it one time and it will change your life and it will change that child's life too. God bless you. Thank you for being here.